My guest today is Professor Elizabeth Loftus. Professor Elizabeth Loftus is an American cognitive psychologist and is professor of psychology and law at the University of California. Professor Loftus was the founding director of the Center for Psychology of Law. Her research focuses on the nature of human memory, misinformation effect, eyewitness memory, and the creation and nature of false memories. Uh, she has been heavily involved in applying her research to legal settings. She has consulted or provided expert witness testimony for hundreds of cases. Professor Loftus has written 24 books and has written or contributed to more than 500 research articles. Professor Elizabeth Loftus is with me on the phone from California. Elizabeth, thank you very much for taking my call. Well, uh, my pleasure. Uh, Elizabeth, before we begin our discussion on the subject of um, uh, human memory uh, and creation and nature uh, uh, of, of false memories, uh, please tell us about yourself, about your education and about your career. I um, went to university uh, at UCLA in, in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. uh, University of California, Los Angeles. I, I got a bachelor's degree uh, there in mathematics and also in psychology. Um, then I went to graduate school at Stanford University and received a PhD in the field of psychology. And um, I spent... Um, a number of decades teaching at the University of Washington in, in Seattle, Washington, and uh, moved about 12 years ago to the University of California, Irvine, the Irvine campus. Elizabeth, you suggest in your publications that when we try to remember something, we take bits and pieces of experience, uh, sometimes from different uh, times and places, and bring them together to construct what might feel like a recollection, but is actually a reconstruction. Talk to us about the process of retrieving and reconstructing memories and bringing them into conscience awareness. Well, one of the things, uh, I think I might be able to explain that by telling you a little bit about the, some of the experiments that I have done where you can really see the reconstruction uh, process at work. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, my, in, in some of my experiments, we might show people a, a, a simulated crime or a simulated accident, and later on, after they have had the experience of, uh, say, watching the accident, we might suggest to them that certain details were different from the way they really were. We can do this by exposing them to another witness's recollection, or we can do this by asking them a leading question that insinuates uh, a detail that's actually wrong. Uh, so, for example, if, if, um, a, if our, our witnesses saw a car go through a red light and they later on get a suggestion that the light was green, we find that many people will tell us they saw a green light rather than a red light. Mm -hmm. So what you can see what's happening here, they have picked up this extra information, this post-event information, this erroneous post-event information, and adopted it as their own memory. And, and really what they're, what they're doing is, you know, some of their memory is based on bits and pieces of the accident. Some is based on this little bit that they acquired after the accident, and they bring it together and 
construct this uh, recollection, which in this example happens to be a mistaken recollection. So, in the process of reconstructing memories, it is possible that the brain does not include all relevant details. So, the resulting memory is a false memory. Uh, similarly, uh, during this process, the brain may include details that are not real. So, the resulting memory is false, but in a different way. So, talk to us about these two types of false memories. Uh, well, uh, you know, I think well, we've all had the experience of... Uh you know, going through some uh, event, and um, maybe you shared that event with a family member or a, or a friend, and when you talk about it afterwards, your family member or friend might remember some details that you didn't remember. I mean, we don't pay attention to every single detail in the events that we experience. We only store bits and pieces of experience. Uh, so some of it some of it gets lost, um, and we we basically call that forgetting, and that's one kind of mistake that people can can make. They can forget. Mm -hmm. um, but the the other kind of mistake that you can make is to pick up information that's erroneous. Maybe it is suggested to you by some other person, uh, or maybe it's an inference that you draw something that you you think might have happened or some kind of inference that you draw based on what you did experience, but the inference, it may not be accurate, but it sometimes feels and becomes almost like a, a, it's a memory. And, and that's, a, that's a different kind of memory mistake. You have collected a number of accounts of false memories. Uh, please give us a few interesting examples. Oh, gee, well, I mean, in... In, uh, in the, the experiments that we've done, we have been able to change people's memories for the details of past events that they have experienced. We can make them believe that a car went through a stop sign instead of a yield sign. We can make them believe that there was broken glass at the scene when there wasn't any. Uh, we, we can make them believe that they, uh, you know, saw Mickey Mouse when they really saw Minnie Mouse. Um, you know, we can we can readily change details for events that people have experienced in the past. But in in a more recent work that we've done in in my research lab, we have shown you can go even further with people. You can get people to construct entire memories for things that didn't happen. So we we, we can plant memories that you were lost in a shopping mall when you were six years old, and that you were frightened and crying and had to be rescued by an elderly person. Uh, that's just an example of, of an event that we have planted in the minds of, of our research subjects, uh, uh, an entire event uh, that never happened, that was completely made up and inserted into the minds of our research subjects. Uh, in some of your lectures, you have spoken about uh, uh, some of these uh, accounts of false memories uh, 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 that uh, some of the politicians and some of the very famous people uh, um, um, hold. Oh, yeah. Now, I, 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 I like to begin some of the speeches that I give. I like to begin with a couple of memory mistakes that mm -hmm. were made by uh, some famous American politicians. Um, for for a long time, my my favorite was the um, the memory of Hillary Clinton, uh, who uh, when she was running for the presidency, 
the Democratic nomination of the presidency of the United States. Mm-hmm. On the campaign trail, she talked about a trip that she had taken to Bosnia. And she, d- she said it was a very harrowing experience, that they landed under sniper fire, that they had to run to, the, uh, to get to their base so they wouldn't be injured. Um, in fact, photographs and videos of that trip that she took emerged later that showed that it was a peaceful landing, that she was greeted by children, that she had shown up with her daughter and, and they, people had brought her flowers. And it was nothing like the, way, the story she told. Uh, and when she was confronted with <laughs> the evidence, uh, I mean, she, she stood up and, and, and uh, basically she said, you know, I made a mistake. I had a different memory. That, I'm, that just proves I'm human, which for some people is a revelation, she said. So she actually responded very well to this. Let us look into another relevant concept, uh, suppressed memories. The theories suggest that intense stress and emotions can cause the mind to hide memories deep in the subconscious, uh, where they remain inactive, sometimes for many years. What is your view on the subject of repressed memories? Um, well, there is, there is a belief out there in the world that when you experience horrific brutalization, you know, you, maybe you're, you're, you're raped for years by, by, by someone, for example, or you have horrible brutalization that happens to you, that the mind uh, represses this information, uh, you know, stores it away in the unconscious where it, it, it sits in some pristine form and then you go into therapy and something happens in the therapy which supposedly lifts this veil of repression and allows you to be aware of these experiences. And it, it turns out there really is no credible scientific support for this notion of massive repression. I mean, there's, there's plenty of support for the idea that, that you might not think about something and you might not think about something even that was pretty unpleasant. You might not think about it for a long time and be reminded of it. Mm-hmm. But that is ordinary forgetting and remembering, uh, and it's not the kind of massive repression that some individuals uh, believe r- routinely happens with individuals who've gone through horrible brutalization. And, you know, I, I have spoken, you know, quite forcefully uh, ab- about the lack of scientific uh, evidence for this claim because... So many families have been ruined, just ruined, so many lives ruined by individuals um, making these sorts of claims and accusing people uh, based on them. There is another viewpoint that suggests that uh, the repressed memories are real and there are, uh, uh, and that these memories can be revived. And you just mentioned that there are a uh, few court cases also. Well, I, one, the, the very first uh, repressed memory court case that I uh, worked on, and, and this was the case that, that got me interested in the subject of repression, was a murder case. Uh, it, it, it was a case involving a man, his name is George Franklin, and he was accused of a murder, um, a murder that happened 20 years earlier. And he was accused by his grown daughter who said that Uh, she'd witnessed her father murder her little best friend when she was eight years old, uh, that she repressed her memory of this murder, 
and now 20 years later her memory uh, came back. She also said that she repressed years of, of rapes that her father committed upon her by himself and including other men who were brought in to commit these rapes. All, uh, all of this horrible uh, stuff allegedly repressed until it returned 20 years later. Now, George Franklin w was prosecuted based on nothing, really nothing other than this claim of repressed memory. And um, w when George Franklin's attorney uh, contacted me and he said, you know, what do you know about this concept of repression? That's when I started looking at the actual evidence. I mean, I'd, I'd heard the term before. I'd never really thought very much about what the evidence was. And I was shocked to find that there was virtually no good scientific support for this. And yet, George Franklin was convicted. So, so a jury uh, convicted a man of murder based on this a claim of repression uh, despite the lack of scientific support for it. And, and then, of course, we saw hundreds and hundreds of court cases uh, in, in this country, and, uh, you know, some in Great Britain as well, because the problem uh, exists there, too, uh, where, you know, people were coming out of therapy uh, claiming that they'd recovered repressed memories, you know, sometimes 10 years of rapes that had supposedly been repressed into the unconscious, suing their parents, their former neighbors, their former teachers, uh, their former anybody, uh, based on a claim of massive repression. And there have just been hundreds of such cases. And I believe there are therapists who say that they are expert uh, in these areas and they can revive your uh, repressed memories. Uh, yeah, uh, there are therapists who... Uh, repressed memories. They don't seem to appreciate their role in helping to construct uh, the stories in the, in the first place. There are experts who testify on uh, behalf of the accusers saying that there's plenty of evidence for repression. Or they maybe they'll say, you know, we don't want to call it repression anymore. Let's call it dissociation or some other term. Mm -hmm. My response to that is, I don't, you know, I don't care what you call it. Just show me. Show me where somebody can be raped for 10 years and be completely unaware of it until they go into therapy and now they're aware. I, uh, you know, I don't think we should be throwing people into prison based on an unsupported theory. But uh, you, as you just mentioned that there are a number of people who actually got convicted on the basis of uh, uh, um, uh, these uh, uh, revived memories. Oh, yes. Well, including George Franklin, he spent five or five or more years in prison until his uh, conviction was overturned. Talk to us about overturning of that conviction. Uh, well, in the case of George Franklin, um, he was convicted of this, uh, of this murder. Um, eventually, about a little more than five years later, uh, he, a federal a judge overturned the conviction for a couple of reasons, and, and the one that's most relevant to the, the topic of memory is that the trial judge had not allowed the defense to bring in newspaper articles that would have shown that all of the detail in the accusing daughter's memory uh, was in the public domain, a matter of you know public knowledge. All of this minute detail that, that so impressed the jury, that so convinced the jury that, you know, where would all this detail come from if she hadn't seen it? 
and so that was one of the grounds for reversing uh, the conviction of George Franklin. And then the prosecution could have retried him, could have uh, made him uh, stand for another trial, but chose not to. Uh, because the daughter, in the meantime, had come up with some other murder memories, other m murders that she supposedly witnessed. And for at least one of those, the, the father had an ironclad alibi. So um, their, their star witness had some problems, and I, I suppose that's the reason why the, the government decided not to re-prosecute. So can we say that these revived memories uh, were actually planted memories? Well, I mean, I can't tell you exactly uh, where this exactly came from, but mm -hmm. it, it might be something she visualized or envisioned or began to construct. Um, and, and we may never really get to the bottom of it. So if the research suggests that we cannot fully trust our memories, uh, then it is important that we review our legal systems. Almost every stage of any legal process is dependent uh, on the memories of witnesses, victims and defendants. Uh, you have provided expert witness testimony for hundreds of legal cases. Uh, talk to us about few cases where the eyewitness testimony was based on incorrect or false memory. Well, uh, I, I, gee, I, I've worked on so many cases, it's hard to know where to start. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, one case, for example, that, um, you know, still stays with me because it was so poignant was a man who was ac accused of murdering a little boy at a, a kind of hotel casino in, 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 on the border between California and Nevada, mm -hmm. a, a place called Whiskey Pete's. And, and this little boy did... Uh, disappear and his body was found about a month later and um and a man who had been visiting the hotel the weekend that uh the weekend that the boy disappeared um ended up being charged with the murder his name was Howard Hopped and um and the the, the evidence in this case was very very shabby shaky iffy eyewitness testimony by someone who thought they saw Howard walking with the, the little boy. And, um, you know, based on that, uh, Howard had to go through a, a lengthy prosecution. Fortunately for him, he was acquitted in that case, but, but he could have been convicted because eyewitness testimony, especially when it's delivered in a very detailed and confident manner, is very persuasive to juries. That just happens to be one case that, you know, I'm proud I was able to play some, some role in. Uh, you suggest that the legal systems should be improved and it should be standard practice that jurors should be alerted to the imperfect nature of human memory uh, and the unreliability of eyewitness uh, testimony. Talk to us about these suggestions. Um, well, one of the things that we know is that people in general, and this would include jurors who are deciding illegal cases and, and, of course, making decisions that are very, very important for the lives of, of citizens, that, that people do have misconceptions about the workings of memory, about the factors that affect memory and eyewitness testimony. Um, 
that they don't always understand um, what the science has shown to be true. They, they, for example, might believe that it would be just as easy to identify the face of a stranger of a different race than their own race. But the research shows that that's not true. We have a, a lot more difficulty identifying the faces of strangers of a different race than our own race. Or they might, you know, they might have all, you know, they have all kinds of, of beliefs that are either unsupported or contradicted by the scientific evidence. So my hope is that we can educate people so they have accurate information about memory, and then when they are serving as jurors and making decisions that affect people's lives, they will be basing those decisions on accurate information, not misconceptions. Now, what the best way is to educate people, you know, that's a matter of, you know, that's a matter of some difference of opinion, but in, 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 in this country, anyhow, one way to do that is through expert testimony. So psychological scientists who have knowledge about the workings of memory actually come into court and, and testify about the factors that are relevant in that particular case. You know, and another, uh, another way of educating people would be through ju judicial instructions, through warnings and instructions that are delivered by the judge uh, to the jury. That's another means by which some education can occur. Are there any examples where um, uh, developments such as DNA evidence uh, have proved the eyewitness testimony uh, incorrect at a later stage? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, there, we have a uh, organization here called the Innocence Project, mm -hmm. and you can even you know go on the internet and type in Innocence Project into uh, the search bar and uh, go to the website for yourself, and you will see. Uh, that the Innocence Project, which is headquartered in New York City, has now uh, posted information about more than 300 individuals who were wrong, wrongly convicted. They were convicted of murders and, and rapes and uh, other crimes that they didn't do uh, because we now know that because years later DNA testing was done and proved that these people were actually innocent. They spent sometimes five or ten or fifteen or twenty years in prison before the DNA proved their innocence. So it's a, it's a big tragedy. Uh, but the major cause of those wrongful convictions is faulty human memory, faulty eyewitness testimony, responsible in about three quarters of those cases. Not everyone agrees with your research uh, findings. Uh some suggest uh, that you have hurt victims and you have aided murderers and rapists. Uh, you have been sued, you have been assaulted, and you have uh, uh, even received death threats. Uh, well, yes. I mean, especially when I first published um, when I first published the myth of repressed memory, a mm -hmm. book that I published in the early nineties which was really raising some questions about these claims of massive repression. Uh, that's, when, that's when people got, got really mad and would threaten organizations that, or universities that had invited me to speak uh, you know, with uh, death threats and so on. I, for a while there, I was having, you know, the organizations would have police or other law enforcement guarding uh, the place when I would be giving these speeches. It, 
it's died down a little bit, but there's there's still some unscrupulous and um, irritated or angry people out there. Now, let us discuss another very interesting aspect of your research. Uh, considering the idea that perhaps we can implant memories and that perhaps we can manufacture memories, uh, you have been investigating the possibility of using manufactured memories to modify human behavior. Uh, talk to us about that aspect of your research. Okay, so... Um Okay, so after all these decades of working on memory distortion and showing that you can change people's memory for the details of events they'd experience, that you can plant entire memories into the minds of people, we, we decided um, to look at this issue. If I plant a memory in you, does it have repercussions? Does, can it affect your later thoughts, your later intentions, your later behaviors? And we began to study this um, by planting false memories that you got sick eating a particular food. So you got sick eating uh, hard-boiled eggs or you got sick eating strawberry ice. Uh, and then we looked to see whether this would affect what, what people told you they wanted to eat and, and even what they actually ate put food in front of them. And so... Uh, we, we showed, yes, you could. You could plant a false memory that you got, you know, in somebody that as a child they got sick eating strawberry ice cream and they don't want to eat strawberry ice cream as much. We can plant a warm, fuzzy memory about a healthy food like asparagus and they want to eat asparagus more. We can plant negative memories about alcoholic drinks like vodka and they don't want as much vodka. And so... In this way, we can modify people's nutritional selections. Maybe, maybe in the long run, we could make some dent in the obesity problem in our society. And so that's what we worked on for, for, for a number of years, the consequences of having a false memory and how, how we might be able to use the power of this memory modification to help people live happier or healthier lives. And what is the percentage uh, of success in such uh, experiments? Well, it, it, de it depends on the experiments and how you measure success. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we did the lost in the mall study, planting a false memory that you got lost and were frightened and crying, we succeeded with about a quarter of our subjects. Some, in, uh, some other scientists have planted false memories and gotten higher rates of false memories, even as high as 50%. So it depends on what false memory you're trying to plant and then how you, measure, how you measure success. The ethical implications for such research are huge. Um, uh, do research ethic committees give you permission to perform such research? Oh, yeah. Well, the human subjects, uh, college and university campuses where, where research is being done with human beings, um, of course, there are ethics uh, or uh, human subjects review committees. They review your protocols. I mean, even in the name of science, we, we can't do anything we want, and we certainly don't want to do something that's going to hurt people. So th they go through a process of review, and uh, we get permission to do these studies. And, and now, of course, we've done, we've done scores of them, but so have many other people around the world. My guest today is Professor Elizabeth Loftus. Professor Elizabeth Loftus is an American cognitive psychologist and is professor of psychology and law at the University of California. 
in one of your research papers you uh, say that the question that how do we tell if a particular memory is true or false uh, is uh, perhaps uh, one of the biggest challenges uh, in human memory research uh, talk to us about that well yes i mean i, I, I first of all um people it, it would be really nice if you could tell based on somebody's memory report whether whether the memory was true or false but but the big problem is that false memories can look very much like true ones so we we asked the question you know maybe people would be more emotional about true memories than than a false one but when we planted some false memories in the minds of some people and compared the emotional ratings for the false memories to ratings for true memories they were roughly equivalent and then we we also did a study where we asked would 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 neuroimaging brain signals be different for a true memory versus a false memory and you can plant some false memories in the minds of people um put them in an fmri machine and get neural uh, signals and you'll find that the the brain activity is similar for a false memory as a true memory. Um, and so, you know, I think the bottom line on my take-home lesson is that um, just because somebody tells you something and they're emotional about it, just because they give you a lot of detail, just because they tell you they're confident in the memory, it doesn't mean that it really happened because false memories can have those same characteristics. So this is a, a really a challenging question then. Yeah, you need you basically need independent corroboration to to be sure. Talk to us about some of the experiments that you perform in 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 the lab conditions uh to 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 understand uh, that how our brain stores and retrieves information. Uh, well, I I did mention earlier, you know, that w- many of the studies involve showing people say an event of some sort, a simulated crime or a, mm-hmm. an accident and then exposing them to some new information afterwards. And the new information that we expose them to might come in the form of a, another witness's version of what happened. We just let them read another witness's version. So they may, have seen a, they may have seen a car go through a stop sign, but the other witness talks about how it went through a yield sign. And later on, when you come back to your original witness and say, tell me what you remember seeing, what you saw yourself at the accident, Uh, they will often tell you that they saw the yield sign the information that was suggested by the other witness uh, and that's an example of what we now call the misinformation effect when you expose people to misinformation it can be stored in their memory it can alter their memory and become part of their memory and lead to uh memory mistakes but um so that, those are the misinformation experiments but then we we also have another paradigm where we are planting those those very rich false memories like you were lost in the in a shopping mall at the age of six and frightened and crying and uh, the way we did that study uh, was to talk to the parents of our research subjects we found out information from the parents <clears throat> about things that really did happen to the subject when the subject was six years old and then with the help of the parent we made up a story about being lost in a mall and fed that to the subject ostensibly it came from the subject's mother or father 
uh, and we tried to get the subject to to remember if possible, and 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 that's in a nutshell how we were supplying the erroneous suggestive information to our subjects, many of whom later would adopt the made-up memory as their own. And the experiments that involve brain scans, where we can actually measure uh, the activity in the brain, uh, do we have uh, uh, an understanding about neural correlates for memory? Well, I, you know, I'm not the best person to talk to about <laughs> the, the neural correlates. The, when I did the study, uh, which we published a, uh, about three or four years ago on brain uh, neuroimaging and false memories, I teamed up with some experts in neuroimaging, and we did the study together. So if you want to talk about the neural correlates of memory, then you want to find somebody who really <laughs> who really knows what they're talking about there. Okay, let us come back to this uh, uh, concept of uh, planting memories. You did a very interesting uh, experiment of planting memory uh, uh, with Alan Alda. Well, what happened with Alan Alda is he was the host of a very popular pro television program called Scientific uh, American Frontiers or, or so something like that. Um, as part of his program, he did a one-hour special on human memory. And as part of doing that one-hour special on human memory, he came to the University of California, Irvine, um, where we kind of put him through our experiment with hard-boiled eggs. We, we, we tried to plant a false memory that he got sick eating hard-boiled eggs. And then we took him and, and a number of my students out into the park for a picnic, and I uh, offered him some eggs, some hard-boiled eggs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he, he, he basically didn't eat one, but... It was it was really just kind of an amusing demonstration of the the, the research paradigm, and you you could actually go to Scientific American Frontiers, you know, whenever that program aired, and um, and watch the whole one hour special and see the you know the the eight minute part of it that was our attempt to plant a false memory in the mind of this famous actor. Now, there is, uh, I'm going to ask you a question that is not directly relevant to your research, but anyone who does research in the field of psychology or brain, I usually ask this question. So, uh, let, let's see that how you address that question. Consciousness. Okay. Consciousness. Uh, we know that there is no universally accepted definition for consciousness. But if I just invite you that how would you comment uh, on that what is consciousness and how, if I ask you to define it how would you, you start? Uh, I would start by going to a introductory psychology textbook and, and looking it up. <laughs> That's how I'd start. <laughs> or I might you know plug it into a, a Google search and see, see what Wikipedia has to say about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean I think of consciousness as just you know what you're currently aware of. Uh, many years ago, I published an introductory psychology book, and, and the chapter on consciousness often was all about altered states of consciousness. So uh, states that we're in uh, at times during the day or at times in our life that are, are not the kind of baseline state. So you're in an altered state of consciousness when you are undergoing hypnosis, for example, or when you're drinking alcohol, or when you're falling asleep. Um, these are kind of different states of consciousness. But uh, So it's a big topic. 
and it it uh, often includes a discussion of normal states and then altered states. Continuing on the same question, uh, two 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 small points here. First of all, do you think that consciousness is something that happens inside the brain? And the second part is, do you think that there is an element of mystery attached to consciousness, or it is just a pure uh, physiological process that we don't understand fully yet? Uh, well, that's I guess what a mystery is. I mean, <laughs> I mean a mystery. Well, first of all, um, I mm-hmm. believe we have lo- we have a lot more to learn ab- about ourselves, and this is good for psychological scientists because uh, if it weren't true, then you know we would maybe be out of a job. <laughs> But there is a lot there's a lot more to learn, and uh, and I don't know very much about the research being done on consciousness, but um, I would just assume there's a lot more to be learned there, and there are things that we have learned over the last, you know, hundred or more years of uh, since the beginnings of experimental psychology. But we we have a lot more to learn, and that's a good thing. And finally, uh, what are major developments and breakthroughs that you envisage in the field of psychology and research on the nature of memory, uh, say in next fifty to sixty years? Well, I, you know, I, I think that we are going to learn a lot more about memory modification. We're going to learn a lot more about how to do it effectively. Uh, how how to do? Maybe it's going to involve some psychological techniques along with perhaps some pharmacology in combination, and we will develop very efficient methods of of modifying people's memories. Hopefully, it will be done to increase the health and happiness of people. But we also, as we gain this power, need to worry about not, you know, ab- ab- about uh, watching out that uh, it's not abused and it isn't used to harm people. Uh, and we'll have to think about, you know, w- what do we do with this power and should we ever ban its use? And those will be some of the ethical issues that. will become increasingly important as we get better and better at doing this. Uh, this point I didn't get this fully that you are saying that th- when we get this power we should be very careful that how we use this. Well, I mean th- that I mean you could well imagine that uh if people have the power to modify memory that it could be used to harm other people or to unjustly enrich uh people or to take over people uh and control them and and you know since we do live in a society that values freedom uh that would be a frightening thing if the this power uh, got into the wrong hands uh, sometimes we watch these movies and are are we just read these novels and stories it's i'm i'm talking about fiction at the moment like a person uh, forgets everything his past okay or her past but remembers how to talk or how to drive the car or how to walk around uh, how how to speak uh, can that happen um well yes the 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 um the term that you in in the psychiatry book is a fugue f u g u e fugue state there are individuals who they often will show up in an emergency room who say they have no idea who they are mm-hmm. or anything about their personal autobiography um they they 
you know, they, they, they know some things. They, they know that a, a, a banana is a type of fruit and a, and a chair is for sitting, but they don't seem to know anything about their lives. And when these cases, eventually these, these, they recover from this situation, some of these cases, uh, I think individual, uh, the experts in charge would say some of them are due to malingering. Somebody is just fleeing a bad situation. They don't want to go back and report um, for Army duty. And so they, uh, they develop this uh, way of getting out of it. Uh, but in some of these cases, uh, uh, I think the psychiatrists would say there really is a genuine kind of breakdown here. Elizabeth, when you look back at your career, uh, this is a very long, very successful research career. Uh, what are the points in time uh, that you would call hurrah moments? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I guess one, one exceedingly important um, and wonderful moment for me was 6.30 one morning, uh, the phone rang and... Uh, I was told that I had been elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. And this is one of the, the biggest honors that can be bestowed upon a scientist in a field that doesn't have a Nobel Prize. We don't have a Nobel Prize in psychology. That was quite a big honor for me because it, it meant that, that the science, the scientific work that I had been doing all those years was recognized as, as you know, being top-notch work. And so I was very proud at that moment. Um, you know, other unforgettable moments are ones that are, that are kind of unpleasant, such as when a, you know, repressed memory lady uh, uh, sued me for uh, defamation. And that was a pretty un unpleasant experience. But um, uh, you, you kind of take the good with the bad. Uh, Professor Elizabeth Loftus, thank you very much for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my oh, show. And thank you for uh, having me.